Let's pray together. Father, what, a, what an incredible reminder this morning of how great you are. You're so worthy of our worship, so worthy of us lifting you high. God, we love you. We're grateful for you. Thank you for just magnifying your worth in our eyes this morning. Reminded of, reminded of Job this morning after walking through all that he walked through, he was able to say, I know that God can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And I had heard of you by the hearing of my ears, but now I see you with my eyes. Lord, I pray that that would be our testimony as a people, as a church, that walk with you, that we would be a people who not just hear you with our ears, but experience you, that see you with our eyes and leave here this morning confident that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I think I hear our alarm going off. No, no, that, that was not you, Vinette. I, I actually hear our alarm outside going off, so I would imagine somebody's back there trying to fix that. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, I hope all of you feel refreshed. Looks like you got another hour of sleep, except for the parents of young kids, right? Denver, our two-year-old and I, we hung out at the exact same time, exact same place. He could care less, you know, about this time change. But um, man, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 7. We're going to be concluding the story of Stephen, and one of the things I really want to point out is that as as Stephen's story ends, what we're going to see is another story beginning, and it's a pretty amazing story. Um, But hey, as you turn there, Acts chapter 7, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have heard of kintsugi? Okay, kintsugi. It's a Japanese word. Uh, I'm going to help you understand if you've never heard of it. Uh, Kintsugi is a Japanese art form that means golden joinery. Okay, I actually have a picture for you. I want to show it to you. How many ever heard of this? Okay, yeah, kintsugi pottery. Kintsugi pottery is an art firm form that takes shattered pottery, takes pieces of pottery, and then reforms it. The potter takes them and joins them back together with liquid gold. So what that means is it picks up what is shattered and picks up what is broken and makes it infinitely more valuable through that restoration process. It's a beautiful, beautiful metaphor because this morning, as we look at the story of Stephen, as the, at the death of Stephen primarily, what I really want you to know is that God is, is in this business. Like, he's in the kintsugi business. He's in the business of taking what was once broken, what's, what is shattered, what may be in pieces, and actually forming it together and restoring it. Not just restoring it, but redeeming it. Using it to, to form something more valuable in you, through you, around you, than you could have ever perceived or thought or imagined. Okay? God is in the kintsugi business. In late 2017, um, our family went through kind of a chain of events, a series of circumstances, kind of an extended season where we, we really felt like this, like felt like we were just in, in, in pieces, kind of shattered on the ground. I won't share everything that we were walking through in that time, but we were still missionaries in South Asia at the time. And our six-year-old who's in the room right now, Hudson, was two at the time. Um, he's, our, he's our free climber. Anywhere you find him, he's going to be up high somewhere, always climbing, always doing something. At age two, he did that, fell off the table, Busted his head open, you know, we go get stitches. Um, We do that a lot as parents of boys, okay? Um, But we were in a foreign country. That's challenging. Language barrier, you know, walking through the stress of that. He gets stitches. About three or four days later, um, we're we're leaving the hospital from a checkup, and I'm at a red light driving a car. Annie's with me. Our oldest was in school at the time, and Hudson's in the back seat. And before I could get a word out, I look in my rearview mirror, and I see it. 75-mile-an-hour drunk driver. Just bam, right in the back. I'll share more about this later in the sermon. It was pretty traumatic for me, pretty difficult circumstance for our family, hard. Um, well, the insurance company wouldn't process our claim unless we were willing to pay a bribe, which we decided that we're not going to do that. 
So we're going out without a car for about six months, trying to save up in order to buy a new car. Annie was pregnant at the time with, with our baby girl. Um, she's our only daughter, so I get to say she's my favorite daughter. Um, but uh, Annie was pregnant at the time, and we, we feared we miscarried. It was one of those moments where Annie goes on bed rest for about 12 weeks, um, which means that I'm, I'm dad, team leader of our team, um, baker, you know, cook. Um, our kids probably won't eat pancakes anymore because of how many pancakes I cooked for them in that season. And it was, it was just one of those seasons. I don't know if you've had one of those. I just look back and go, I was the, I was the worst version of myself. Like just high stress all the time, really difficult time. Delivery ended up coming for Emmy at about in May, which came with jaundice and, and, and the NICU stint, and then some postpartum for Annie. And we finally reached August of 2018. And um, August 2018, we had a scheduled furlough. If you're unfamiliar with, with missions, we have the opportunity to come back stateside and really heal up, get a chance to see some medical doctors, get some counseling, just restore your soul a little bit. August 2018 comes. We're walking through the security at the airport, and Annie looks at me and says, I'm so glad we're doing this. I need this. I need this desperately. In fact, the phrase she used was, I'm suffocating. I feel like I'm suffocating. Whew, gives me emotional. And uh, we get to airport security, and the, and the police come, and they take us out of line, take us to another room, interrogate us for about an hour, and then they, they, they won't permit our exit, quoting faulty paperwork. That was really the beginning of the end for us. If you know our story, we ended up kicked out about a year later. And um, but we, we weren't able to leave. So we had to get back to our domestic city, which was another flight, waiting in the airport about nine hours. We have pictures of the boys, and they're sitting here just passed out. We're just waiting on the airport and just, just in pain, you know, just feeling like, what is going on in our life? Like, just feels like, it really feels like we're shattered. And when we look back on that in hindsight 2020, you can kind of go, why were we so hurting? You know, why were we so broken? Like, we endured that. It was fun. We got through it. Hindsight's always 2020, but when you're in the middle of it, Man, it just feels like you're in pieces. Like it just feels like you leave you leaves you shattered. How many of y'all have, have walked through any kind of season like that? Right? Maybe maybe walking through one right now, when you look at the circumstances of your life, you just feel like you're in pieces. Feels like you're in shattered. I want to I want to look at the life of Stephen, the death of Stephen, and remind you God's in the Kintsugi business. He can take what is broken and he can restore it and make it infinitely more valuable. But the question I really want to put in front of you is how do you respond to seasons like that? Like, what's your response to circumstances that pack against you that make, make you feel like you're in pieces, right? For me, I'm a little bit of a fighter, okay? I want to bow my neck. I just want to grit my teeth. I want to endure it, and we're going to get through this, all right? Maybe you're more a little bit like Annie. She's a little bit like a flighter. We, we have a joke in our family. It's really not a joke at all, but we say that she has um, uh, stress-induced narcolepsy, and it's not a joke because that's a real thing, okay? So I shouldn't be joking about that, and she does not have that, just to be clear. But when things get really hard, she'll fall asleep. Like, I won't talk about that one time in the first month of our marriage where we were arguing, and I kid you not, she fell asleep. And I'm sure I handled that with grace and peace <laughs> and mercy. But maybe that's you, right? Maybe your response to that is like the fainting goat, you know, that you see on your seat. You just want to roll over, fall asleep a little bit. Life gets overwhelming. You just want to kind of get out of there. But, but what about you? Like, how do you respond? How do you respond to situations? That's what we really want to look at, because what we see in our passage today is a really hard, really difficult, really overwhelming circumstance that Stephen finds himself in. And I want to be very clear. You and I will probably never find ourselves in a circumstance like him, because Stephen actually gives his life for his faith, right? He dies at the hands of his persecutors, and that's probably not going to be yours and our story. As much as we want to complain and bemoan the current state of our situation here in America, we still live a privileged life, right? We're still privileged that we get to be here with no fear. We get to worship. The only hard thing we had to do today was wake up, right? 
But man, people around the world, don't, don't get confused. Just because that's our situation, there are people today that will give their life for the faith. Let me give you a statistic. There were more martyrs in the 20th century for the Christian faith than there were in all the centuries combined before that. People are giving up their life for the faith. But for us, that's probably not going to be our situation. Right? That's not going to be a circumstance that most of us would be faced with. But that doesn't mean that the situation you're in, that the circumstances that are leading to maybe some brokenness or some shattered pieces of your life aren't going to be used just like Kintsugi. That God is in them. He sees y'all. He sees. He cares. And he doesn't just see and care. Like He engages. As we approach Advent, I'm so giddy. I don't know about you, like, like what kind of personality you are. Halloween was over. I'm ready. Like, I'm ready. I'm ready to start worshiping with some Christmas music. And I love the concept of Emmanuel, that we worship a God that is with us, like with us. He wants to enter into these things with us. So I've, I've set up the introduction long enough. Let me just ask you, how do we respond? How do you respond? How do you respond to these pieces, these scattered you know, pieces and shattered pieces of your life in these circumstances? And that's what we want to look at in the death of Stephen. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 7, we're going to begin in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's look at verse 1 through 3 in chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. God does kintsugi, okay? That's what I want us to see, and I want to ask, how do we respond? So if you weren't here last week, I want, we, this really builds off what Coleman taught last week. Coleman took two chapters of Scripture, which is incredibly difficult as a preacher, okay, and shared about what the life of Stephen looked like. We have to remember, we're talking about Stephen. Stephen had recently been appointed to what many believe as the first deacons of the church. He was a Greek-speaking Jew who was able to care for the Greek-speaking widows, okay? That was his responsibility primarily, was to oversee the daily distribution to these Hellenist widows. But as Coleman shared last week, he wasn't just fulfilling the command of, of deacon. We find him in chapter 6, uh, fill, full of grace and power, walking in the fullness of faith in the Holy Spirit, and he's performing signs and wonders, and he's preaching Christ in these Greek-speaking synagogues. So what do they do? Throughout chapter 7, as he preached, the more agitated they became, and they, they dragged him before the Sanhedrin. They pull Stephen to, to stand trial for this perceived blasphemy of Christ. And what does Stephen do? As he stands in front of this Sanhedrin, as he stands on trial, Stephen just keeps preaching Christ. He continues to testify to Jesus. And he concludes his sermon. Look at, look at chapter 7, verse 51. He concludes this sermon with this incredible invitation to an altar call. I'm just kidding. Look what he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen preached boldly, and the more he preached, the more agitated they became, to the point of where we find in verse 54, they are enraged. They're, they're clenching their teeth, they're literally seething with anger at Stephen. 
but they hadn't gotten to the point of violence yet. Right? So what drives them over the edge? What moves them from being agitated and enraged to actually stoning him? It's the vision that he saw. What happens is Stephen looks up and he says, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they plug their ears, they rush at him, and they begin to stone him. Y'all, we see nothing here of a formal condemnation or a sentence. There's no legal procedure being followed here. They brought them before the Sanhedrin for that, right? For some legal condemnation. What instead happens is a mob is incited. This is a mob riot. They rush Stephen. Have you ever been in a situation like that, like a mob situation? Maybe you're a Tennessee fan, and you were in Sanford Stadium yesterday. Is that too soon? I'm sorry, okay? UGA graduate, okay? Maybe you're in a mob situation. Well, listen, Annie and I have been in a mob situation before. I told you I was going to reference the car wreck. Let me go back to that. Okay, so before we moved to South Asia, we'd gone through a bunch of security training on how to avoid situations like this. This, this for us was just unavoidable. We got hit in that car, and, and, you know, and if you've ever been in a car wreck like that, the, the dust of the airbags is in the car, there's smoke, you know, you're kind of dazed, you're a little bit, little bit shocked a little bit, and um, I remember looking over at Annie after I kind of come off the airbag, and I see her head on the dashboard with her eyes closed, and it was probably only a millisecond. You know how this stuff works? It was, I mean, she probably only had her eyes closed for a millisecond, but whatever happened, I processed that as I just lost my wife. It was traumatic for me. But she starts blinking, praise God, and, and I, I look at and I see Hudson. Hudson's in the car with us. And the, the seatbelt had totally blasted off the side of the wall, so his car seat's upside down, stuck in between my seat and his seat. So I get out of the car, and I'm trying to get him free. And y'all, Annie can confirm this. By the time I get him out of the car, our cars are surrounded by hundreds of people. The masses are just flocking to this. And we lived in a city of about 6 million people. Okay, the masses have come, and they're dragging the drunk driver out of the car, and they're beating him. And by the time Annie and I get out of the car, they're going through our car looking for all of our valuables. And if it weren't for the sake of a couple of good Samaritans, we, we, it was a bad spot for us. We were able to get across the, the road safely. But y'all, that was a panic situation. We, we were really experiencing some fear, just experienced the, what a mob can do. And that's what Stephen was going through. They just rushed him. And this is what I want us to look at. How does he respond? How does he respond when that mob begins to rush him? Verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is point one. How did Stephen respond? He looked up. As the mob is gazing at him, Stephen's just looking up at God. He's looking up. Metaphorically, literally, he's looking up. And what does he see? He sees the glory of God. The glory of God in a person. Because the glory of God is a person. Okay, The glory of God is just his presence. It's God's presence. It's his magnificence, his weight, his absolute perfection. And what we know from Scripture, listen to this on these Scriptures, is that the true glory of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He... Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. John says in his introduction of the gospel in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. You've seen the glory of God when you have seen Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells in body. Right? When we see Jesus, we see the glory of God. And that's what Stephen saw. When Stephen looked up, he saw Jesus. He saw a person. But look at the posture of that person. What, what was Jesus doing when Stephen saw him? What posture was he in? Standing. In a hundred instances in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, we see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. 
Because the right hand of the Father is a position of power, it's a position of authority, it's a position of equality with the God the Father. But we always see him sitting. In a hundred instances in Scripture, kid you not, more than a hundred, we see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. In one instance alone in the entire New Testament do we find Jesus standing here. Yo, that is so significant. That as Stephen is about to give up his life, he looks up and he sees the person of Jesus, he sees the posture of Jesus standing. I like to see it as a standing ovation. Standing ovation for his saints, for people who want to look up, for people who live a life that are looking up. Him standing is a welcome. It's a welcome into the kingdom because you know what? The, the, first, the last thing that Stephen saw before he died is the first thing that he saw after he died. Right? Because when you're, when you're away from the body, we're at home with the Lord. So Jesus is standing. It's a standing ovation. So we see the person of Jesus. We see the posture of Jesus. But look at the form that he sees in him. What's the title that Stephen gives him? Okay, let's look back. Verse 56. And, and, and Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. It's the Son of Man. That's an interesting title, right? When Stephen looked up, he didn't see him as, as rabbi, rabbi. He didn't see Jesus as king. He didn't see him as, as Lord or Christ. He sees him in this title of the Son of Man. And this is significant also because there are 83 instances of the Son of Man in the New Testament. 82 of them are used by Christ himself. This is Jesus' favorite way of introducing himself. He refers to himself as the Son of Man more than any other reference. Only one time in all of Scripture is someone referred to Jesus as the Son of Man other than himself, Stephen. Stephen refers to him as the Son of Man. So why? Like, why does Stephen look up and see Jesus in the form of the Son of Man? What does that mean? The mystery of that is unlocked in the book of Daniel. Okay? It's in the Old Testament. Old Testament prophets, the book of Daniel. You don't need to turn there. I, I'm going to read for us, but I encourage you to read it. It's Daniel chapter 7. In this chapter, Daniel had a series of dreams and visions. And in these dreams and visions, there was about four world powers, four sovereign rulers and kingdoms that had established themselves on earth, and they were wreaking havoc on earth. And after one would fall, another would raise up, and they were ruling the earth. And then Daniel sees this vision in verse 13 where he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. Okay, Daniel has a vision of one like a son of man, and this son of man would be coronated. He'd be given a crown. He'd be given a dominion where all nations, languages, and peoples would worship him. And the Jews expected this. We've talked about this through the series of Acts, right? The people expected that this son of man would be a militaristic king, that he would establish this kingdom, that he'd get rid of the kingdom of Rome and in its place establish the kingdom of Israel. Except the fact that Jesus constantly tried to redefine that expectation, right? They possessed it. He tried to redefine it. Listen to this in Luke 9. He says plainly, the son of man must suffer many things. Listen to that. The Son of Man must suffer many things. It's not a militaristic king that's going to establish this eternal kingdom. It's a suffering servant. And he's going to be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, he's going to be raised again. They were expecting that this Son of Man would come with a sword. But Jesus constantly tried to redefine that expectation. said, no, I'm coming as a suffering servant. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block. 
It's a stumbling block because it goes against all of our expectations. Jesus, as the Son of Man, is not a militaristic warrior. He's a suffering servant. This is why they shoved their finger in their ears. Okay? This is why they put on their noise-canceling headphones. They were so sick and tired of hearing this blasphemy because to consider that the Son of Man would actually be someone that was crucified is blasphemy. So they shoved their ears, showing their piety, saying, we don't, we don't want to even hear this, but you know what? It doesn't matter if you shut your ears or not. It does not matter if they shut their ears. You know why? They had heard it before. They, they had heard this before. This same Sanhedrin on the day of Christ's death, point blank asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? This is Mark chapter 16, and Jesus answered, I am. Then he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? We have heard this blasphemy, and they condemned him to death. Y'all, claiming to be the Son of Man got Jesus crucified. Seeing a vision of the Son of Man got Stephen stoned. Stephen was in a tight spot, pieces, shattered. How did he respond? He looked up. He looked up and he saw a vision of Jesus. What do you do when you're in a situation like that? What do you do when you feel like your life is in pieces or when you're shattered? Maybe your situation has left you just kind of in despair. Church, look up. Because Jesus can be the Son of Man, but he's also the sovereign king who controls and rules all things. You don't need to despair. Look up. Maybe your situation has left you weak. See a vision of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Maybe your situation has left you feeling alone, maybe unloved. Look up and see a shepherd. When he looks out and he sees a sheep who are helpless, without a shepherd, he has compassion on them. He's the epitome of love, the epitome of of, of compassion. Maybe you just feel like everything is against you. You're in an unjust situation. It's leaving you feeling like you're in pieces. Maybe your rights are being infringed upon. Look up and see a vision of Jesus' humility who though in the form of God, did not count equality with God. He had rights to be God, yet led him aside and took upon the form of a servant to be killed on a cross. Maybe your situation, and often I find this is what God does, maybe your situation has left you really knowing, I am spiritually empty, and I am lost, and I am broken, and there's got to be more to this. Man, look up and see a Savior. Because he didn't come to condemn the world but in order through the Son that the world might be saved through Him. That's what we see when we look up. So look up. When your circumstances have left you feeling like you're in pieces, when you feel like you're shattered, I just encourage you to look up. Get a vision of Jesus. Seeing Jesus, seeing the Son of Man sustained Stephen. There's one more thing I want to say about what he saw when he looked up. Seeing the Son of Man sustained him, but seeing the example of the Son of Man guided his response. It guided him. All right, let's look at the prayers of Stephen really quickly. Acts chapter 7, verse 59. And as they, as they were stoning him, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar? Where have we heard that before? Right After hanging on the cross for three hours, Jesus says, Lord, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen is approaching his death the exact same way he saw Jesus approach his death. He's just imitating the example of Christ. And as the stones kept coming, he hits his knees and he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Where else have we heard that? It's exactly what Jesus prayed. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It was Christ's example. It was the example he saw in Jesus that guided Stephen's response as he approached his death. How would you handle that? Like really put yourself into the narrative. Because this really happened. 
You know, this is a true story. Put yourself in the narrative. Someone starts throwing stones at you. How do you handle that? I got a pretty good arm. If a stone misfires and it's in within reach, I'm going to say right now, eye for an eye. We're going to see what we can do here. I may go down, but I'm going to get one of them. Again, you may be a flighter. Roll over. Give up. What does it look like? Would you have done what Stephen did? Would you have said, Father, I give you my spirit. Father, forgive them. Stephen responded to that situation by looking up and seeing Jesus and letting Jesus' example guide that response. This is what being a disciple is all about. Right? We always complicate discipleship. We're like, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means look at Jesus, learn from Jesus, and just do what Jesus does. Right? Which means we have to familiarize ourselves with the person of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus so that we can just do what Jesus does. So Stephen, when he's in a tight spot, when enough was enough, when his life feels like he's in pieces, maybe being shattered, he looks up, he gets a vision of Jesus, he sees an example in Jesus, and he responds appropriately. And then the second point for us is ultimately... By the way that he looked up, by living a life looking up, it led to a victory. Okay? When we look at this story and we see that Stephen was just stoned to death, we think he's a victim, right? We would think he's a victim. No, no, no. He's the victor. Okay? He is the victor of this situation. The victory first and foremost is found in eternal life. Acts chapter 7, verse 60. He cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. And I love that Luke, and I love that the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, this early church, they substitute the concept of death for falling asleep. Have you seen that? Look at 1 Thessalonians as Paul writes that to people. They substitute this fact of dying with falling asleep. This is why. Okay? In Psalm 31, um, we, we, we read this in verse 5. It was a common prayer prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Psalm 31, 5. Right? We've seen that before. But what we see, I mean, let me back up. In that, in that culture and in that time, what I've read in these commentaries is that Psalm 31.5 was a very common prayer prayed in Jewish households for children as they go to sleep. So you go into your room, you're putting your kids to bed, and you pray that with them, Father, into your hands we commit our spirit. It's an act of faith. It's an act of assurance that as I lay down, we know that you never sleep, you never slumber, you're always watching over us. It's an act of faith. It's an act of assurance. It was always prayed before people go to sleep. But Jesus and Stephen, they pray that prayer before they die. And then we find the early church continuing to use that concept. Instead of talking about death, they're talking about falling asleep. It's a confession of our assurance in the resurrection. It's a confession in the reality that to be away from our body is just to be at home with the Lord. They weren't dying, they're just going to sleep. Because believer, when you open your eyes, you get to see what Stephen sees. You get to see Jesus welcoming you into eternal life. We always joke that there are two constants in the world. You might know what I'm about to say here. Death and taxes, okay? That's a sermon for another day, the taxes. We'll get there at some point. Death is a constant. It's something that we're all going to experience, whether you're 96 years old or 26 years young. And we, I don't know how old Stephen was, but I don't think he was very old. And sometimes we would look at this situation and go, what a life wasted. Cut short before he actually had time to really bloom and to blossom. But that's not what a Kintsugi God does. He wastes nothing with a life that's looked up. So the first victory we see is in the eternal life that Stephen experienced in that moment. But I also want to say that we see victory in eternal plans. What we see here is in a life that is looked up, nothing is wasted. God takes those pieces, he takes those things shattered, he forms them with gold, and he promotes his purposes and his plans. Verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Again, we look at the pieces of the church right now, scatter on the floor in this situation, and we go, uh-oh, like they're in trouble. They're broken. They're getting beat down. No, 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 they're not victims. This is happening in accordance to the plans and the purposes of God. Remember the thesis statement. What's the thesis statement of Acts? Acts 1 verse 8, you will be my witnesses, carrying God's story through Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. For the first seven chapters, the church remains, their witness remains in Jerusalem. Stephen gives up his life by looking up, and what has God used that to do? Spread them. Scatter them. Because what's happening here is this is not a dispersion of refugees. It's a dispersion of of missionaries. These are people going into Judea and Jerusalem, fleeing for their lives, but they're carrying the gospel with them. That concept of scattered that we see in verse 2, they were all scattered. It's the same Greek word that talks about a farmer scattering seed. And what happens to seed over time? It grows. It grows. What Saul and his compatriots thought would put an end to the church just became the fuel that drove its mission into Judea and Samaria. I was reading, and one commentator made this, it's pretty gruesome, but made this point that, that the spread of the church, when you look at the spread of the church beginning in Jerusalem, it, it's almost like a wounded deer that's been shot. You follow the trail by following the blood of its saints. It's true. We think that when people give up their life, but with a life that's looking up, that they're the victim, that something bad has happened. No, God forms it together to continue to promote his plans and his purposes. So we see that in the evangelization here. We see that in, in, in the, uh, the move of the gospel into Judea and Samaria. But the last thing I want to say is that we also see that Stephen's death fueled the plan of God in the person of Saul, right? So Luke is such a brilliant writer. He's introducing a character. As Stephen's story ends, he's introducing a new story. Let's pick up on, the, on where the Saul was. He begins in the story as a bystander. Luke chapter 7, verse 58. They laid down these garments at the feet of this young man named Saul. He began as a bystander. Now, why was Saul there? Why was Saul there? All right, Acts chapter 6, verse 9. Stephen is preaching and performing these signs and these wonders in these Greek-speaking synagogues. And in verse 9, we see that one of those synagogues is of this province of Cilicia. Okay? What we know from Saul's life, and we'll see this in Acts chapter 9, is he was from Tarsus, a city named Tarsus, modern-day Turkey. Tarsus was the leading city of the province of Cilicia. So what we can conclude is that Saul's in Jerusalem gathered with these other Jews in the synagogue of Cilicia. And Stephen starts performing these signs and wonders. So he begins as this bystander. But as the narrative progresses in chapter 8, verse 1, it moves to, from bystander to consenter. And then ultimately, he becomes the main driver of these persecutions that moves the gospel into Judea and Samaria. In his zeal, Saul was driving the persecution. But we also know, and what we're going to learn all of next year, okay? 2023 is going to be the deep dive into the life of Saul's ministry, okay? But what we know later in Scripture is that the death of Stephen left its mark on Saul. God used the brokenness of Stephen's life ultimately to lead to conversion, the greatest missionary of all time. 
God wastes nothing for a life that is looked up. As St. Augustine said, it's Stephen we have to thank for the Apostle Paul. So let me conclude uh, with a quick story. When I felt called into ministry, I had a mentor of mine, I think I was 19 at the time, had a mentor of mine take me up to the Cove at the Billy Graham Evangelism Association up in Asheville, right? Beautiful place if you've been there. And I was getting a tour by one of these tour guides, and on the walls lining the hallways of the Cove are pictures of his crusades. Right? Pictures of hundreds of thousands of people packing out these stadiums in order to hear Billy Graham preach. And I guess the tour guide could read my mind. Because as I'm looking at these pictures, he looks at me and says, hey, don't try to be the next Billy Graham. That's what he said. Don't be the next Billy Graham. And I'm, and I'm in my zeal, and I'm like, well, why, why would I not? Like, I want to make an impact on the kingdom of darkness, right? I want to, I want to promote the kingdom of Christ. Why would I not want to, meet, to lead that many? And he answers. The tour guide says, um, did you know that Billy Graham has 11.1 million recorded salvations under his ministry? Process that. Okay, 11.1 million. But then he asked me this. He said, do you know who led Billy Graham to Christ? No. You know, and then he continues to lecture me. He says, there's a man by the name of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham was a pretty famous traveling evangelist that had a pretty big ministry just like Billy Graham. You know who met, led Mordecai Ham to Christ? A man by the name of Billy Sunday. If you've read anything about church history, you know about the impact that Billy Sunday had on the spread of the gospel. You know who led Billy Sunday to Christ? A Presbyterian minister and evangelist by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman. Pretty famous ministry. You know who led J. Wilbur Chapman to Christ? Really famous guy, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody led him to Christ. Anybody know who led D.L. Moody to Christ? Hardly anybody's heard this name. Edward Kimball. He was a young boy's Sunday school teacher for 35 years and led D.L. Moody to Christ in the basement of a shoe store. So then the tour guy looked at me and said, maybe if you can live a life looking up, maybe you can be Edward Kimball one day. Think about his legacy. Think about what he was able to do. So we could look at something like Stephen and go, man, what could have been? What could have been? His life was ended too quickly. No, no, no. God restores God renews. God uses that brokenness to continue to promote um, his, his purposes. So 2017 to about August of 20, 2018, we, our family walked through that time of, of, of deep hurt. Went through a lot of counseling through that. It's a really hard time, and there was a lot going there that I won't get into the details. But it took about two years for God to bring me personally out of that. It was a time where I couldn't hear his voice. It was dark. It was hard. I was questioning a lot. But we kept looking up, kept looking to Jesus. In hindsight, you know, it was always 2020, but he was forming something in me. He was working in me. But after two years, and we finally came out of that on my birthday, one of our teammates, really hard for me not to get emotional, one of our teammates came over on, on my birthday, and he gave me a present. He, he gave me a piece of kintsugi. And it's the most meaningful gift anybody's ever given me. Because if you know, when your life is in pieces, when you, feel, when you feel shattered, you need hope. You need to be able to look up and see, y'all, God does this. He's in this business. I encourage you, look up, look up. So why don't you go ahead and stand with me? I'm going to pray for us, and then our, our team will lead us in another song of response. Father, we have heard of you by the hearing of our ears, but now our eyes see you. And we, like Job, want to know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours will ever be thwarted. Father, I'm thankful that we worship a God that is always working, always forming, always renewing, always restoring, taking what is broken and, and you're piecing it back together. 
Lord, I pray for the gift of faith for this church, for our people, for all of us to trust you, to look up, to get a vision of you, to see you, maybe as the Son of Man, maybe as Lord, maybe as Lion, maybe as Lamb, maybe as Savior. Reveal yourself to us. We know that you're in that business. The earth, the the stars, the skies, they declare the glory of God. They declare the person of Christ. I pray that you would help us to see who you are so that we can live a life that's looked up because it's never wasted. Always, always used for our good and for your glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.